Hi everyone, this is Divya. I'm really excited to introduce our guest for today's episode, Dr. Aprajita Datta. Dr. Datta is a senior scientist at the Nature Conservation Foundation, a non-governmental research organization based in India. And Dr. Datta leads their Eastern Himalaya program. Dr. Datta is a trained conservation biologist who has been extensively engaged in both research as well as conservation activities in Arunachal Pradesh, a northeastern state of India. And we'll hear a lot about her field sites in this episode. Her interests include plant-animal interactions in rainforests, understanding anthropogenic effects on the wildlife, and engaging in community-based conservation with tribal communities. Dr. Datta is quite popular for her seminal work on hornbill conservation in the northeastern part of India. I've been fascinated by Dr. Datta's work on community-based conservation and restoration. She's one of those rare scholars who not only researches on morally just and inclusive conservation approaches, but also practices what she preaches on the ground. This for sure comes with its own challenges, and we will hear all about that in this episode. Thanks so much for joining us. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Aprajita. Thanks so much for uh, agreeing to be our guest on the podcast. I'm really excited and looking forward to our conversation today. So how are you? How have you been? I've been good. And thanks, Divya, for inviting me to be part of this Um yeah, I've been good. <laughs> I know that, you know, Prajita, you were uh, in the midst of getting ready to head to the field. And, and I know that how packed your schedule might be. So I'm really appreciative of the fact that you've spared time to talk to us. But um, how is it in the field right now? I mean, uh, is, it, is it okay to travel to the field, given that, you know, we are still in the middle of the pandemic and the number of cases are still like, you know, rising in certain parts of the country? Yeah, so actually it was quite uncertain even in, um, you know, I'm going to Arunachal, which is our main field site, and it has been uncertain there for the last several months. In fact, it was supposed to be that, you know, much of the Northeast was going to get hit by a third wave uh, in these next few months. Uh, It was supposed to happen already, actually, and it was rising in June, July. But the recent, um, what we've been hearing is that the cases are declining and the government is sort of restricting some curbs on people's movement and all that. So I think it's all right. And I've had my, you know, both my doses of the vaccine. I've had, I've had a very bad, uh, you know, case of COVID. And, you know, in general, uh, you know, apart from during the travel, Arunachal is is quite, um, it's not that you're going to be in big crowds or in the city and we're in the forest mostly or in our base camp with few people. So it's not going to, I, I don't think, you know, I'll, I'll catch it. So I think I it should be all right. Yeah, yeah. To travel. No, I'm, I'm sorry to hear about your bad case of COVID. It sounds, it sounds scary, but I'm glad that you were able to recover and come out of it fine. And you seem strong and I'm excited that you're going to be back to your uh, field site again. But I'm wondering, like, you know, um, I, I can sense that the way your field site looks like, it's, it's, it's not like the rest of the country. The rest of India, it's very different. Can you tell us a bit about what does field site look like? So my field site is basically the uh, you know the Parke Tiger Reserve and its surrounding area, um, you know, which includes uh, you know villages and uh, you know parts of some reserve forest. 
So I began work there long back in 95 and, you know, I've continued working there apart from some of the other sites in Arunachal over these, whatever, 25 years. And it's, um, it's very geographically, I mean, to give people a sense of where it is, it's close to Tezpur uh, in Assam, in Shonitpur district. Uh, it's about one and a half hours from uh, Tezpur and Tezpur is about four hours from Guwahati. So it's in the western part of Arunachal. Um, sort of like on the border of Arunachal and Assam. Uh, it's in the lowland tropical forest, um, north bank of the Brahmaputra. It's about 800, uh, you know, 60 square kilometers of tropical semi-evergreen forest. It's also in this, set in this larger landscape of the, you know, many other uh, reserve forests and sanctuaries, you know. So it's basically this large area also called the Coming Elephant Reserve. Um, mm. And... Uh, the district it borders, Shonitpur district, is actually also also had a lot of reserve forests in the past. But in the last 20 years or more, yeah, more than 20 years, probably in the 90s, uh, it experienced a lot of deforestation, the Shonitpur uh, district, the border area. And that has been written about a lot in different, uh, in research papers, as well as a lot of articles. Uh, the highest uh, deforestation rate. And that's because of a lot of the, um, during the Bodo insurgency, a lot of the people from Western Assam moved in to these um, North Bank landscape areas and sort of cleared areas for settlements and to claim it as part of uh, Bodo land. So it's an area which is very, uh, you know, got a good population of elephants and tigers and, my area of interest, of course, more is hornbills, which are these tropical forest birds, which I've studied there for my PhD. I began my PhD there in 97. And mm -hmm. so for four years, I worked there for my PhD. And then over the years, we've continued different um, research and conservation projects in that landscape. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to get into uh, more details about your PhD and your work on the hornbills, but you know, I just want to like get more understanding of this landscape. I mean, it sounds so fascinating, Aprajita, the way you describe it. I mean, it's a mosaic of, you know, this anthropogenic disturbances and also, you know, this really interesting mix of species like megafauna and you've got the avian fauna some of the remarkable species, I must say. And then you also talk about this, uh, you know, the, the, the conflict, the, the Bodo land conflict. So there is this, like, you know, the, the insurgency of this, like, you know, extremist group. And then there's also this, like, you know, uh, people from the neighboring states who are coming in. So I can imagine that how all these factors might have influenced the transition of this really unique and beautiful landscape. So, for, so in your time of working in that landscape for all these years, so, so how many for how many years have you been there? Almost, yeah, twenty five years. Whoa, <laughs> <laughs> that's a long time. Mm, so, yeah. so in your experience, Prajita, did you really see uh, these these changes sort of like you know manifesting themselves onto the landscape in any way? Yeah, so it'll be a very long answer, your question. Mm. Okay, so the thing is that, you know, when I came there as a researcher, my first, um, as a, you know, 
um, just after my master's um, as a research fellow from the Wildlife Institute of India. Um, the initial research project was actually to look at the impact of logging on squirrels and primates, arboreal you know, species. So there's a lot of um, diversity of tree squirrels also and primates in this area, monkeys. So we, um, so I, my uh, research work was actually looking at, uh, I had sort of transects inside the national, in, inside the park, as well as in these uh, reserve forests outside, mm -hmm. looking at in plantations and in recently logged forest and old logged forest and all that, right? So, and it was during the time when there was a, a lot of hue and cry about the logging that was going on in Arunachal which was actually affecting, you know, the forest cover and all that. There was a lot of concern. And coincidentally, as my study ended, um, there was some kind of a case in the, um, you know, in uh, Supreme Court. And there was this case, the Godavarman case, which is very famous and, you know, all that. So there were a lot of judgments and they passed a order banning um, all kinds of logging in Arunachal. Um, and that ban remained in place for the last, like, for, the, for a long time, right? Until uh, around 2010 or so. And um, it's still there. I mean, but it's, it's, it's kind of modified. Um, mm. There were some conditions which the court had laid down. But that, in that, because of that ban, the forests got a respite from the logging that had gone on. And even though that was legal, there was parts of it uh, where it was not legal in the sense that much more was extracted than what was given permits for, or you know, some of the logging happened in areas where which were actually not uh, supposed to be logged, right? So it was selective logging. In those days, it was actually known as Pakui Wildlife Sanctuary. It was not a tiger reserve. It became a tiger reserve later, and uh, Pakui was you know it, it was known as Pakui, and it was not known as Pake. Pake is the more Arunachali name, which was given later um, rechristened by some of the local uh, forest officers who came later. Uh, it used to also be a reserve forest and a game sanctuary, right? So it had areas which were disturbed in the past where people had lived. And also it had old logged forests inside the sanctuary. And there were, there used to be settlements in the past in the Southeastern part. And uh, people were relocated. There was one village which was relocated. That was much before I came there. Um, in 83 or so. Um, and so I, I didn't have that much. So when I, my, in my, in my, during my PhD time, I was mostly confined to working in the sanctuary and I had interactions with people only in terms of my assistants, the field staff that I worked with or the forest department staff. But I also used to go to the villages, you know, and I used to uh, interact with the, some of the local people and they all knew me as this mad researcher who's always walking around in her dirty clothes and whatever, but, and working on hornbills. And so in those days, there used to be sort of much more hunting. There was no sort of road through the um, park, which allowed vehicular movement. We'd be walking everywhere. Um, and the, the logging was stopped in 96. Uh, and I started my PhD work in 97. But I also knew what was happening on the Assam side, right? So when I started work in 95, in fact, the day, um, you know, when I reached first, a few days later, Bodo militants attacked, um, they, they sort of uh, put a bomb in one of the Arunachal state transport buses. 
and uh, many people died arunachali people you know and uh, it was in november i remember 95 and there is even a memorial uh, in memory of them in in this village in assam near the border and i have i ha- in those days i used to travel on those buses i missed it by a few days you know so and simultaneously on the western part of pake on the other side in this area called tipi a few days later there was again another attack where they killed a few people so it was at the you know time when it was really um, at the peak of the you know that movement and and then they started clearing those areas so i saw those forests on the assam side disappear in those you know 10 years and um you know many times as a researcher uh, like by by 2005 it was transformed that landscape you know in terms of i'm talking about the assam side not the arunachal mm-hmm. side nothing really that much had nothing much had happened on the arunachal side although mm-hmm. people used the forest of course but the 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 all the you know deforestation really in those days happened more on the 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 logging had happened in arunachal which was a different uh, sort of activity but um and you know in those forests which were bordering we knew some hornbill nest trees in fact some of the bodo people used to show me those nest trees and i used to go with them and it it, it was such a um you know i was put in such a conflict kind of situation because i could see their poverty mm-hmm. and you know they almost had makeshift houses those people who would come from western parts of assam and they would have very little and they were always concerned about elephant attacks because that area is full of elephants and so they had these makeshift places to live in and so that they could run if you know elephants and and at the same time they showed me some one bill uh, but all the trees were being cleared and all that right and eventually one dfo forest officer told me not to go to those places he said it's not safe for you to keep going there you know and then we even encountered um, you know these bodo um, guys with guns in fact you know once we were on a transect and coming back from this plantation which bordered near um assam and mm-hmm. the you know i was carrying a tripod which looked probably like a gun <laughs> and we saw like a for the distance away some uh, they were def- i mean my assistant knows and he told me that these are the bodo and strangely enough while we were considering what to do they uh, looked at us from far away and sort of ran <laughs> so my my field uh, you know assistant who's japan who was my he said oh he, he must have thought that we are like police guys or some you know like the army mm-hmm. because we were wearing more uh, this camouflage clothes with yeah. this tripod and so yeah we had lots of um, things like that happening in those days and uh even the alpha used to be active in those forests in those uh, those days even inside pakke they had come many times mm-hmm. um you know in the rest houses where we used to stay so yeah so i have seen that area change you know over mm-hmm. uh over the years mm-hmm. and uh, but the worst transformation was on this you know this border areas and it of course affected um i feel it affected hondels um as as a species that i uh, know more about in terms of you know all those nest trees hornbills uh, all these four hornbill species that are found here uh, at least three of them are the ones which really use this lowland habitat for nesting and foraging mm-hmm. and feeding and uh, one of the most important tree species in this lowland forest is this species called tetramelis nudiflora it's mm-hmm. called belu in assamese and that uh, you know 
it, it was really cut down and it, it, it sort of thrives in the lowland forest. And so that was gone. So, um, and I believe that because of the forest loss, we would, we started seeing effects on, you know, how the hornbills were nesting. Um, we saw competition, more competition for nest sites. It's kind of anecdotal, but it, 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 it yeah. I believe it's because of the loss of so much habitat. More than 400 square kilometers was sort of deforested um, in mm -hmm. that. And that's recorded in many papers, you know, it's not just me saying this, um, in that area, right, in that district. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's, you know, all along this foothill belt from the Bhutan side mm -hmm. to the, to the mm -hmm. there's a recent book you should read. It's called, it's a fictional book written mm -hmm. by this Assamese writer called Ankush Saikia. Mm -hmm. It's called The Forest Beneath the Hills. It's, it's, it's set in this landscape mm -hmm. and with actually the events that happened uh, with a fictional character, you know, mm -hmm. and his... Uh, sense of loss in that landscape it's it's a very um it, for me it was very i could identify with that book because i i've seen it happen in those years right. yeah so um so maybe it's a very long answer and i don't know whether mm -hmm. i answered your uh, question you did. you did you absolutely did aprajit i mean it was just for me to hear about the intersection of all these different drivers of land use change and then in the midst of all these changes that were happening I see you trying to sort of like, you know, um, navigate your fieldwork and, and do your research. And I think it was quite brave of you Like you know, uh, you've, you've experienced so many different conflicts. I mean, you missed uh, a bomb blast just by, you know, pure luck. So, you know, when that happened, actually, that was just my first week there, right? And it was totally new to me, Arunachal, right? And... The, the forest officer who was in charge, he knew me from before because he had come to WII as a trainee. Mm -hmm. And I had to go back to WII about a couple of weeks after coming there because I had to do some exam or something. And he didn't expect me to come back after that because of all mm -hmm. the things that were happening there. Mm -hmm. But I returned and he said, oh, I thought you'd never you come realize. back. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but you know, the, the, the mm -hmm. thing is that and, you know, I just wanted to say that that fear mm -hmm. about, yeah. so um, the, um, this stretch, you know, this is a very short stretch, which is like a no man's land for people in Arunachal and Assam. Mm -hmm. um, so to access all these areas in Arunachal, you always have to go through Assam, right? Mm -hmm. And the road ends. Uh, after you reach uh, the border, the road through Arunachal was just, is just 16, 17 kilometers mm. in those days, you know, uh, yeah, that's it. And beyond that, it's just, you have to walk everywhere. Right. Mm -hmm. But the, um, so everyone like till 2003 or four till sort of, it became more safer mm -hmm. because I think there was some understanding that came between the Bodos and the local Nishi community in Arunachal. Yeah. But till then there were, periodic attacks there were there were kidnappings also see later the character of some of these things changed because yeah. apart from alpha and bodo what happened is there was also a lot of maybe other kinds of elements you know that people mm -hmm. people who didn't have any other source of income they would try to kidnap some of mm -hmm. the locals or people mm -hmm. you know just to get extort money and all that yeah. and so whenever we used to travel on that little stretch of road to reach Arunachal, it was always like, oh, we're like always worried something's going to happen. And mm -hmm. things were, you know, there, uh, there were other incidents that happened. And 
um yeah so after 2004 it's become a bit more safer but mm-hmm. paradoxically let me tell you that it's actually in arunachal in this place or many other places it's more safe for women oh, unlike yeah. in other places you <laughs> yeah. know so in yeah, fact right. one, one of the later forest officers mr tanatapi who's a nishi mm-hmm. and who's very well known as one of the you know great officers who really changed uh, how bakke mm-hmm. was functioning yeah. he used to say always oh the women are safe no problem mm-hmm. because so many women researchers have worked in bakke after that you know mm-hmm. and have con- and continue to work there so yeah, yeah. now i mean this was a really rich description uh, aprajita what you shared was a very rich description of all these uh, you know factors mm-hmm. that have really influenced the transition of the landscape over time and i think uh, i really like the way how you embedded your uh, experience also into that like you know how it was for you and how you've seen uh, all all these events sort of like you know unfold uh, and and with that i mean i think it would be a great idea to also sort of hear a bit about your background as to like you know uh like ac- academically like um did you always wanted to be a, a restoration ecologist or a wildlife biologist or uh, or was it certain events that steered you in that direction so overall like uh, can you just share a bit about your background with us yeah sure so um you know from when i was very young if i remember i used to always love animals so that's a very typical thing i guess you know i love dogs and stuff and so i wanted to be a vet that was the first thing i wanted to be and then it became that i wanted to be an oceanographer or things like that but then when we were i was about 8 years old we moved to africa we mm-hmm. lived there for um, my parents lived there for longer but i lived there with them for about 6 7 years and so there i really um got more into it because i had these biology teachers and in you know in zambia we were used to live in zambia and i you know went to some of those national parks and i used to read a lot of uh, gerald durrell and david attenborough and you know i i loved watching wildlife documentaries and um we had a zoo club in the school um i had this great um you know uh, german uh, american teacher who was you know of german origin and she really inspired me you know and as I, biology was my favorite subject so that happened and then when i came back to india to study um you know biology continued to be my favorite subject and i knew even in class 12 that i wanted to study ecology in future mm-hmm. and uh, so but you know i thought that there's not much options in india at that time this was in in the early 90s and so then i was trying to apply abroad uh, you know for my uh, at the bsc level but i i didn't level. yeah yeah you know giving sat and all that and then did, that didn't work out so then i mm-hmm. um, i joined the presidency college in calcutta Mm-hmm. and the, the next best, best thing which was not actually the next best thing it was botany mm-hmm. um you know i got i got into botany honors mm-hmm. and frankly speaking although i loved my experience in presidency college it was so much fun because of all the friends i made and because of the mm-hmm. other kind of atmosphere we spent most of our time in the canteen uh but it was i didn't really gain much academically being there you know and I didn't really learn much there actually mm-hmm. honestly mm-hmm. speaking I used to not attend classes much mm-hmm. and it was kind of boring the way it was taught you know at that level mm-hmm. although presidency is a good college for many other sub- subjects but yeah. um then very kind of very accidentally in one some in some uh, 
slightly different kind of bookshop in Calcutta, I saw this brochure for the Wildlife Institute of India. And it seemed too good to be true that there was a, you know, masters in wildlife science or ecology in India. And then I found out more about it. And then, you know, I applied and uh, my father wasn't very uh, keen that I do something like that because he hadn't, you know, <laughs> he was quite horrified, but, you know, he was very supportive, even though he didn't, uh, he thought it's not a great thing to be doing, but yeah. So I, I got in there um, and then, yeah, then that really changed my life. But when I got into the Wildlife uh, Institute of India and I didn't know a thing compared to some of the other uh, mm -hmm. students, you know, and it was quite intimidating initially. I read a lot of fiction and literature I love, you know, and whereas all these wildlife people, most of them like look down on people reading, they would like talk about George Shallard and all the, you know, wildlife uh, writers and, and, you know, nonfiction. So yeah, so but then slowly, I became so uh, serious about it. And I think I, I really sort of really gave a lot of my, uh, you know, yeah. And that from then on, it, it, it just became the thing to, that I did. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, your PhD continued post your master's? Oh, right, right. Sorry. Yes, I, I did my PhD. So my PhD, again, during my master's, I got interested more in behavioral ecology of mammals, mm -hmm. especially these marmots and squirrels. And I applied abroad right, mm -hmm. to the US. And I got into a couple of universities, but I didn't get the full scholarship. Mm. I didn't get it for the first year or something. And I never pursued it. And in mm. the meantime, I did this short project in Arunachal. And I then said, okay, I'll write up my own uh, proposal and project. And then mm -hmm. I, uh, I continued in the Wildlife Institute and did my PhD mm -hmm. from there. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, so I, in some ways, sometimes I regret missing out on a more sort of better academic training um, mm. uh, uh, and doing, I think if I had gone and studied in the US or elsewhere, mm. I would have done more research and stayed more, um, you know, in that field. Uh, mm. But because of my, you know, kind of diverse and rich experiences in Arunachal, I, be I became um, a mix of many things like an ecologist as well as an you know, conservation practitioner and sometimes an activist and getting involved yeah. with people and lots yeah. of things, you know. So yeah. sometimes I regret doing that because, <laughs> you know, I have some key research interests, which I think I wasn't able to pursue fully mm. uh, because of this messed up, mixed up things that I've done <laughs> through the years. Yeah, but you know, it's, I, I really love the way you explain your background, um, Aprajita. I mean, it brings out the humility in you. And yet it also showcases that how driven and passionate you are about what you're doing. And, and it's something that, that sort of like, you know, was ingrained in you while you were growing up. And yes, there were certain things like, you know, this, this admission in, you know, uh, botany in your undergrad, that did not like resonate with you, but then I think that passion in you sort of like, you know, was, was alive. Mm. You ended up being uh, in this really beautiful uh, Institute, the uh, Wildlife Institute of. Uh, yeah. It's Wildlife Institute of India. Yeah. I mean, that, in those <laughs> days it was, yeah, we were in, we were the third batch of MSc students. Yeah. yeah and uh, I cannot wait to hear about, you know, the, the work on Hornbill and, and the work on the restoration that you've been doing, Abrajita. 
And when I think of Hornbill, you know, I mean, I in, instantly, I, I see this image of this magnificent bird, which just seems to be, you know, out of nowhere. How, how did you end up working on Hornbills? And, and can you tell us a bit about like, you know, the work that you've been doing on the Hornbills all these years? Yeah, okay. Um, so the reason I got interested in Hornbills, um, you know, apart from the fact that they're kind of conspicuous and loud and in these tropical forests, they, they are uh, in, uh, very important as seed dispersers, you know, and I've always been interested in sort of plant-animal interactions. And uh, one of the main areas of research uh, that we do is frugivory and seed dispersal. And hornbills are functionally very important as seed dispersers. They eat a lot of fruits, especially the forest hornbills. You know, they are, a lot of their diet is um, tropical fruits of tropical forest trees. In fact, they are like naturally uh, restoring the forest. Uh, you know, if I may, like they're called the farmers of the forest. And so a lot of my PhD thesis actually looked at their role as seed dispersers. But in those days, because nothing much was known about these four species in India, mm -hmm. um, because, you know, the, India has nine species of hornbills, but the ones in the Northeast are these five species. And although some of those species, most of those species occur in other parts of Southeast Asia, a couple of them also occur in other parts of India. But um, not much no, was known about the basic biology or ecology of these hornbills. So we also studied, I also sort of uh, documented and studied their nesting habits, their nesting patterns, what they, you know, nest on, what are the characteristics of those nests and stuff and the, the breeding biology, when do they nest, um, how long and the details of all that, right? Um, also in terms of documenting their diet, across the year. I also was always interested in understanding the seasonality of flowering and fruiting in, uh, in these tropical forests, you know. Um, you know, during my masters and other times, I've always been very enamored by the work of uh, a lot of ecologists in the neotropic. A lot more work earlier being done on plant-animal interactions, frugivory, seed dispersal, tropical forests from those systems. So, you know, I really wanted to sort of replicate all of that in the, these uh, these forests, and so a lot of my thesis depended uh, was on focused on understanding the fruiting and flowering patterns of um, the community, uh, the forest uh, trees. In so that was um, that was those first years. Actually, you don't know about one of my biggest projects. I think which was actually the the which revered away from hornbills but since you're asking about hornbills i'll say you know why because i was trying to go chronologically with my research and after i finished my phd actually i took a break for some time mm. from hornbills you know i i went and did some surveys in eastern arunachal where we found this new species of the species of munchaks uh, mm -hmm. which were with the help of some no knowledgeable uh, local communities in those eastern part of arunachal that Munjak had been described by a uh, US, uh, you know, Amer American scientist um, on the Myanmar side. And I believe that they occurred also in the Indian side. Mm -hmm. So, and the tribal people there knew about them and they had names, local names. So I did those surveys because, you know, I've always been, um, 
like I told you, a mammal person. And I'm interested in a lot of different things, you know. So mm-hmm. I went and I also wanted to, because I, after I spent four years studying hornbills, you know, I also traveled a bit in Arunachal. Mm-hmm. So whenever the field was getting a bit too much for me and lonely for me or mm-hmm. tedious, the data collection with just mm-hmm. field assistance, I would take off. Mm-hmm. I would pretend that I was doing some important hornbill uh, finding out and I would go to some other part of Arunachal just mm-hmm. for a few days to take a break mm-hmm. and see some other place. And so as a result, I was very interested in the people also and all mm-hmm. the different tribes, right? So Arunachal mm-hmm. has 26 different tribes, 110 mm-hmm. sub-tribes. So I, I just wanted to learn more about the state and its people. So I used to read a, read a lot of the anthropological literature. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so I wanted to also understand hunting patterns. So I went to do that survey after my PhD. And then I thought, okay, I have to start a, so I was conflicted between two things because that's the, again, I wanted to do a postdoc looking at um, more details of seed predation and secondary seed dispersal in these forests because some questions arose from my PhD thesis. You know, I wanted to understand more about this trees and hornbills and terrestrial rodent interactions, you know. And so I was talking about a postdoc with a French uh, scientist. And, but then um, I was, you know, I was supported by the Wildlife Conservation Society India program. And they sort of told me, no, 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 you, you should do this conservation work in this area with, you know. And so I got sucked into, again, doing conservation, right? And that's how my journey completely changed because I, again, went into just going and, you know, doing conservation work. And so my plan was to start a, community-based program around Pake with the Nishi community to try to protect hornbills, you know, in that landscape outside, especially because hunting was a big issue then in those areas, right? But again, that changed because I went to Namdafa National Park. Mm-hmm. And there, um, you know, that's a different story completely. And that park led me to look at people park conflicts. Right. So um, although it was grounded in doing some monitoring and work on hornbills in Namdafa, we also got into monitoring the threatened wildlife, the other groups in Namdafa. And we set up this conservation program with the Lisu people. Right. Mm -hmm. So that consumed me for for years from 2003 to 2012. So simultaneously, we continued some work in Pake, but Mm -hmm. that was not the core of my work for those years. I was, uh, so I I went back to Pake in 2003 to begin, Mm -hmm. um, we we established this long-term nest and roost monitoring. So now we have almost 22 years of data on hornbill nesting patterns. And Mm -hmm. I was really involved with working with the Lisu community in Namdafa. Mm-hmm. And that's a very different story. And we can go there yeah. later yeah. Uh, if you have time uh, or mm-hmm. if you're interested. But that was really sort of the heart of my work and mm. uh, for a long time. And that didn't end very well. Mm-hmm. And I've written about it, in, a, in not fully. And I hope to write a book about it someday. Uh, but we, um, so there, of course, I was joined by a researcher who became mm-hmm. my first PhD student, Rohit Naniwadekar. He went on to do his PhD study on hornbills in Namdafa. Uh-huh. And he looked at certain different aspects, again, related to seed dispersal and other aspects. But so he, um, so there the hornbill work continued alongside 
all the community work. There we got into looking at livelihoods of the Lisu. I established schools uh, for the yeah. in those villages uh, beyond Namdafa, and I also um, got doctors involved in a healthcare program to provide medicines and healthcare to the Lisu. um people um many things yeah we got mm-hmm. into doing rural energy providing solar lighting in one village all of this was to sort of get them to sort of support and be positive about wildlife conservation and to also start a dialogue between the forest department the park authorities and the lisus because there's been a there there'd been a conflict over land over the mm-hmm. creation of the park And yeah, the Lisus, yeah, that's a different yeah. story. Yeah. Yeah. No. No. I mean, this is a really nice segue to the, you know, the other aspect uh, that I I was really interested in in discussing and rather asking you is about like you know I I see your journey as this you know ecologist and wildlife biologist, but then I'm also aware that in your work how you've been very inclusive and and you've been you know focusing on this like community based conservation and community based restoration where you've partnered up with the local communities like you know these tribal communities that you're talking about the lisu tribe and the other tribe tribal communities that you're talking about these are the communities with whom you eventually sort of like you know partnered up so i'm i'm really interested in 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 understanding and also learning about your experience of how did you make that transition like here you are like a researcher or wildlife biologist who is under, who 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 is trying to understand like the the behavior patterns of hornbill or hornbill nesting um, <laughs> yeah. um yeah but then eventually um, i can understand that you know with your deeper engagement and by the way like you know it, it was really nice to also here you talk about some of the realities of doing field work that how how lonely how how sort of like you know um the kind of burnout that you know it can also lead to so thanks for sharing that because i think uh, you know very few people talk about these these realities we we hear about their great work but the all the hard work and all the frustration that goes into it you know never mm-hmm. uh, comes to the fore but anyway going back to you know this uh, community aspect um so Uh, yeah i'm really interested in learning about how how did you one um um uh, gain the confidence that you can do something like that like you know engage the communities like you know these tribal communities in the conservation work i mean you know as academics we all have all of us we have intention to to bring about some change through our work but it's very rare that it translates to like you know having real world implication so when i when when i hear about your work i can see it like you know that that you've gone beyond being a researcher you're pretty much like you know you're also wearing this hat of practitioner where you're working with the communities yeah so I, so i want to so i want to like you know hear your uh, your experience of working with the communities and how did you how did you find success in in engaging them in the conservation process what did that experience look like oh i wouldn't say it was a success okay so yeah so there's a lot of complexity in that let me say by, by you know i think the reason i got into it is because maybe i am i'm very 
overly optimistic about my abilities. And in fact, when I began the Lisu work, a lot of people thought I'm taking on something which is incredibly complex and hard, right? And many people advised me against it. And even when I was doing it and I was totally into it and, you know, some of my um, other colleagues, you know, my friends would joke that, you know, you become like a, you know, Christian or a missionary, mm. you know, missionary zeal. And so again, let me say that as a biologist and, uh, you know, the way the kind of training in Wildlife Institute, although there was some kind of bits of social science literature that we'd been exposed to, we really didn't have that, right? So, so I didn't have so much theoretical understanding or knowledge, right? And one of the big debates, which you might be aware of between these and the divide between wildlife biologists and social scientists in India in this, in this space of protected area management is this about, you know, that this understanding that all oh, local people have a lot of negative impacts and therefore, you know, this whole thing of exclusionary versus more. But, you know, so in, 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 in Namdafa, what I saw was that, so why I wanted to do this is because I could have easily gone back to Pake and started working there firstly, but Namdafa was exciting. It was a, it's a magical place, you know, it's just an unparalleled wilderness, you know, even much more exciting to me, in fact, than Pake. <laughs> Not a nice thing to say, but yeah. So, but it's just, you know, 100 meters to 4,500 meters, 2,000 plus square kilometers of, of just the most incredible wilderness close to Burma, right? And I was, I was fascinated by also the Lisu people and their culture and also the whole hardships they faced. They faced a lot of negative, uh, they, they faced a lot of hostility from, firstly, because they were a small tribe um, in a remote location. They were sort of cut off from the rest of the world, right? So their villages were in this corner, surrounded on all sides by Myanmar. Um, some of those areas were also had been given to Nepali people in the past. They had lost a lot of their agricultural lands due to um, erosion, right? So that's why, and they've always felt some parts of Namdafa were theirs. So the park was declared in 83, the boundary, the Tiger Reserve was. And at that time, the Lisu didn't really understand the implications. They tried to oppose it, and but they were not, it was not considered, right? So, and they had uh, citizenship before, but they were, I mean, for some reason, the citizenship was cut off. So they were not even a scheduled tribe of Arunachal. And in Arunachal, if you're not a scheduled tribe, you're nothing, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so they faced a lot of, and, and they had a lot of uh, sort of anger. And, you know, uh, and some of their anger was, of course, directed at the forest department because they didn't uh, agree to the, whereas they were seen as encroachers by all mm-hmm. the, forest people and the general wildlife, you know, uh, thing. But when you go there and you actually walk, so it's a walk of five, six days through the park, right, to the villages. There is no road. There was a road that was built long back, which was never motorable. So the Lisus have to walk the entire stretch from 150 kilometers from their villages on the eastern boundary through the park to reach the nearest town where they will get any kind of medical, uh, whatever, uh, access to facilities, yeah? So, so basically it was, a, it was a crazy kind of situation and I should have left it alone, <laughs> but I was foolish, I think now. So at, on, on hindsight, I should have probably left it alone. Um, so what, yeah, okay, so getting involved with people. So I went in with what I think were good motivations and good intentions. 
and of course um, you know i faced hurdles all along the way right so um and it was like being stuck in the middle like a between a rock and a hard place because on the one hand um many of the forest department people thought i was very thought i was encouraging the lisu or being sympathetic to people and the lisu some of the lisu who were suspicious of what i was doing saw me as a wildlife biologist or as a forest department agent whereas all i was trying to do was actually just sort of trying to bring some kind of compromise solution some kind of reconciliation you know i really felt that the lisu um you know that we could find a solution to this problem because they wanted you know their settlements inside the park to be recognized right and to be allowed to because they had moved in there right and they wanted some area of that whereas the whole tiger reserve thing is about inviolate areas for tiger conservation at the same time as a wildlife biologist i could see that people do have impacts see this is the other problem with a lot of social scientists and they will try to deny any kind mm. of impact of often i think it's much more messy and nuanced and i think mm. the work of ncf many of us i think is much more like i think a lot of areas it's context specific you know what happens on the ground right um it's not about uh, my belief is that people are having an impact but we still need to work with people yeah and we still need to find just solutions mm-hmm. which can uh, you know um be uh, use good for wildlife as well as for people uh, ideally and i don't believe that we should do um, forced or exclusionary kind of conservation Mm-hmm. uh you know that i don't think the ends justify you know the means of how you do conservation so therefore it was that kind of engagement but the problem was that you know we don't have that kind of space mm-hmm. and you know as an ngo researcher as a single like sort of scientist although i got collaborations with people for all these other activities we did with the people like the interventions right so i got collaborations with katha in delhi for the schools so i did all of those things yeah you know i had collaborators for different aspects of what we were doing with the community but in the end what really mattered you know people were willing to uh, we had lots of initially good things happening like community took a stand against hunting there was a lot of suspicion of course among some members of the community so it was always a struggle to have dialogue with them meetings with them once i had a marathon 8 hour meeting with uh, the whole, you know my in fact my the field team the guys who used to work with us for the monitoring they said aapko lawyer banna chahiye tha you shouldn't have been a wildlife <laughs> you know because i was trying to convince them about certain things and so but i always felt i was stuck in the middle and there was a lot of hostility to this work because it was viewed with a lot of suspicion by many people from both sides i'm saying from the wildlife conservation community as well as by also among the people you know and a lot of arunachali people also like oh why are you working with the lisu people because they are not so you know it felt really hard and i got into a lot of the anthropological literature i was also trying to see how we could help the lisu get st status i got totally sucked into that uh, sort of you know because i felt really i didn't like it that the people were being maligned you know and uh, as a whole community being uh, sort of um, um maybe i got too emotional about it you know mm-hmm. and uh, and there like whole community being judged they were seen as uh, encroachers as poachers all that you know and 
Yeah. I lived in their villages and with them and you know like they're an amazing people and very enterprising. So but at the same time they're very they also understand what their um, concerns and needs are right? Absolutely. And in Arunachal every place every community has an area which they call their own right the land other so in their case they were like confined to these four five villages outside namdafa some of which some of that area had been given by the government to nepali villagers ex servicemen who were mm-hmm. settled in the 60s there mm-hmm. so already they were kind of you know so they had a lot of issues and the road access wasn't there they were not st so it was a it was a situation where people had a lot of resentment right mm-hmm. against the government and the uh and the you know so they were also suspicious of me many times right so mm. but in the end what happened but at the same time i was trying to see what could be good for wildlife too right mm-hmm. and that is where it didn't actually work out in the sense that people did take some stand against hunting um hunting did reduce to some extent and all that but then when it came to the land issue you know there was kind of no compromise right and after many years the government found some land outside the park but that was not really suitable and the mm. dissus refused to look at it you know yeah. and then it all fell through and mm. then a lot of the people in the community were upset with me because they thought that i was also the person pushing for this and that everything was fine the status quo was all right till you sort of came in and started you know uh, so mm. um, it was a really um, very very um, how will i say very very sad um ending for me you know mm-hmm. and uh, that's when i regret that not why didn't mm-hmm. i get into this conservation you know stuff i should have just done my research written my papers mm-hmm. on seed dispersal and frugivory and you know so yeah and i decided i'm not going to work again with people after that but then as usual <laughs> this and simultaneously sort of this thing happened in pakke again so you know we put it all on the back burner we never uh, established any community based conservation work in pakke mm, in those years yeah. right we just did some monitoring you know some transects some nest monitoring roost monitoring with a few of our field staff who were again from the local community but i used to keep going back to pakke you know a few mm. days uh, in a year and all that then um, you know there was this opportunity mm-hmm. so i'm just now coming to the nest adoption program yeah which i had always been my original idea do you want to interrupt me yeah, yeah i yeah. i wanted to just say one thing um apradita you know like um as i hear about all these like descriptions like and i can see that you are just so fierce <laughs> you would not you would just not give up and you would just go above and beyond i mean you've set your heart into something and you would just like you know do everything and anything possible and then i was you know when when i was hearing about you know all these struggles that you were facing i mean um yes i mean you 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 were attached to this community and and this attachment happened despite the fact that they were suspicious some of you, them some yeah, of them yeah yeah it's not you, a in yeah universe yeah. but, but there, there was suspicion like you know the, these traces of suspicion that and it's it's quite a, it's it, it's quite a, um no maybe a social scientist obvious. or anthropologist examining my work would be horrified right maybe mm-hmm. i didn't go by the rule book you know uh-huh. always right because i didn't i did read up a lot when i was mm-hmm. uh, doing that work at that mm-hmm. time you know because i got more into that kind of literature 
mm-hmm. but uh, it doesn't give you that training na huh, to uh, mm-hmm. to uh, be in that uh, and because i was always straddling both worlds right so it was mm-hmm. not all re- completely from that point of view right yeah but but you know to be honest aprajita there's no amount of training that can prepare you for the real world that's true uh, the the real world has its own uh, you know lessons it has its own way of teaching you yeah. and 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 the fact is that you know um there there was a point when you realized that that maybe it's too much and uh, maybe it's time for me to to not you know invest my energy anymore yeah. yet you 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 went back to to another uh, protected area and still sort of like you know found that renewed hope in working with people yeah so but the yeah. difference was that i didn't get so emotionally involved okay uh, and also because there was a, another uh, researcher a girl who was working and who was very interested in community work with people um you know amruta rane her name was and she had just joined our program a one year before and were working in pake with the monitoring stuff and then uh she was interested also in working with people and so partly because she was there i also sort of okay let's do this and because there was this great officer i was telling you about tanatapi the time seemed right to sort of i know uh, and what happened is we analyzed our data so we'd been collecting this long term nest monitoring data right from 2003 onwards till 2010 and we noticed that there was a lot of all the nest trees that we knew outside the park the few nest trees that some of the gamburas had shown us um were all you know being disturbed or getting cut down or you know they were um not successful in nesting whereas the park nests were all safe so we and in the meantime all this deforestation had occurred right i told you right and it was also going to uh, starting to affect the arunachal side so we uh, decided that we need to do something to protect the hornbill habitat outside the tiger reserve in the reserve forest and you know dr pilai punswad she's this scientist in um, you know um, conservationist in thailand she's another person huh? she's even worse than me like she's like doesn't give up she's now in her 70s and mm-hmm. she's a big inspiration uh she uh, began this pioneering nest adoption program in southern Th- thailand with the you know near the border with malaysia where you know you have many sympatric hornbill species and i took that model where basically you um um you get citizens over everywhere india and elsewhere to sort of adopt a hornbill family or a nest and pay for um, you know the costs of uh, doing that because you know starting that kind of a conservation program if you depend on grants they just only there for a couple of years and then you could keep on uh, trying to sustain that so we thought that would be a nice model and we also wanted a partnership with a community entity and the forest department mm-hmm. so tanatapi was always willing and eager and very excited and to help and suggest and at that time he had helped establish this society called the gorabe society it's a mm-hmm. council of village elders uh, basically all the gamburas uh, from these different villages near the boundary with pake um so they had sort of started working in collaboration with the park they were sort of trying to control hunting and illegal activities outside the park you know in mm-hmm. the in the village and mm-hmm. the reserve forest areas 
so um so they were also and i knew those gamburas from before right they've seen me as a researcher for many years yeah. and some of them had shown me nests before you know when mm-hmm. i was a researcher so i talked to some three four of them and i said that you know we'll we'll give you an honorarium initially but will you will you be willing to we, i told them about the bare bones of the program and i said do mm-hmm. you can you look for nests uh, will you be willing to look for nests this season mm-hmm. and if you find nests outside and you know uh, maybe we can think about starting some program to sort of uh, so then that year they um, you know we just paid them an honorarium to find mm-hmm. the nests and they found and how did you how did you shortlist these people inside to interact how did how you did... short shortlist these people to um, you know uh... oh the these were the well known gamburas from the main uh... villages and they were already people who are very knowledgeable about the forest and hun- like they were hunters before all of them Mm-hmm. um and uh, they knew hornbills right they knew mm-hmm. hornbill nests so that's how uh, they were members of that gorabi society so mm-hmm. um and these are all uh, indigenous communities th- this is the nishi community mm-hmm. right so the mm-hmm. one of the dominant communities in arunachal especially mm-hmm. in the western part of arunachal and around pake it's the nishi people right mm-hmm. so um and tanatapi himself is a nishi Uh, mm-hmm. officer so he'd been there since 2006 um mm. so anyway so then we uh, came back a few months later and they had found 11 nests that year mm-hmm. and then we had a more dialogue and meetings and then uh, we sort of formalized how we do this program we established an mou mm-hmm. um a three way partnership with the mm-hmm. gorabe society as the first party and um ncf as the second party and the forest department and uh, tanatapi was of course the wildlife dfo mm-hmm. but we were actually um going thinking about protecting the forest um in the outside areas right in the reserve forest but because at that time there was the this thing of that buffer zone it would be mm-hmm. buffer zone of the tiger reserve plus as a forest officer he's also responsible for schedule one species like hornbills which are outside right so in that mm-hmm. sense he sort of in good faith he sort of became the signatory for the forest mm-hmm. department mm-hmm. and we did inform the uh, main forest department one of the like oversights probably that we realized later is that we should have actually got a more formal kind of uh, thing with the forest department and the territorial division but mm-hmm. at that time there was a good kind of understanding with the territorial department who was in charge of the reserve forest and there was also this belief that the buffer zone you know tiger part of the reserve for would be coming under his leadership anyway right so yeah so that that was a bit of an oversight we realized later but anyway so that started off uh, in january so november so the gorabe society chose the nest protectors from different villages and the mm-hmm. model was that these nest protectors would be responsible for looking for and protecting and monitoring the nests within their near their areas mm-hmm. from different villages and we would raise the money from citizens across india and elsewhere mm-hmm. to support their salaries and then also you know provide them equipment and training and all that to uh, do this work um and the selection was totally up to uh, the gorabe society to do initially mm-hmm. so we had the you know they 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 had these meetings in the villages and they selected the nest protectors mm-hmm. and we had um what do you call it yeah we sort of launched the program in january 2012 mm-hmm. and we started mm-hmm. uh, getting um, we reached out to a lot of our friends and colleagues and people 
a um, lot of the you know photographer people some of my friends who are they reach you know so a lot of um, people from mm-hmm. bangalore initially were the citizens who donated so the mm-hmm. adoption rate at that time was like 5000 rupees for mm-hmm. whatever so some people were so generous that they gave much more than uh, just 5000 mm-hmm. so we it was like putting up these three four species for adoption mm-hmm. and then in the first year i think we found an amruta my colleague she was the sort of uh, coordinator locally uh, but mm-hmm. they, we also had a local coordinator from the community mission mm-hmm. mm-hmm. so we've gone through many ups and downs even in that yeah. program yeah. so it's yeah. been yeah. challenging i can know i can totally yeah. understand i can totally understand because while by the time we started work in pake to do mm-hmm. this hunting was no longer a big issue Mm. because there's been other changes over the years and hunting of hornbills had really declined yeah you know so but what became a challenge and it is still a challenge now is the um, kind of illegal logging that has mm-hmm. um, you know take like it it was always there in you know very small but since 2015 or 16 it really became much uh, worse mm-hmm. um 2017 i would say um mm. lot of chainsaws being used and also mm-hmm. like you know um labor from mm-hmm. outside the state coming in and you know right. and, and that's also yeah. because of a whole series of socio economic factors you know sure. that this illegal logging became a big thing yeah and that yeah. has resulted in challenges in terms of our managing to protect the larger habitat we've not mm-hmm. lost nest trees much except in the first year we lost a few nest trees and last year we lost one nest tree but otherwise we've not lost nest trees and hornbill nesting success is pretty high in comparison mm-hmm. to what's happening in the park mm-hmm. we are monitoring both right mm-hmm. uh, the ones in the park are being monitored by our other uh, field staff mm-hmm. we actually support and employ about 25 people in this program well wow. so i you know just to uh, be be sure and uh, you know prajita our, our uh, audience is is Uh, it's kind of like you know worldwide and yeah uh, so just to sort of like you know clarify because it's like whole nest adoption hornbill nest adoption uh initiative um that you know your group has uh been doing for all these years like you know you said since 2012 um yes. it it just sounds um 10 years now yeah it just sounds like really interesting that you know how one there, there are multiple things that i see happening here one i see this engagement of not just you know um the community of uh, really driven scientists and ecologists but also you did have some support from um the the forest department yeah um uh, officials especially like you know who were from that uh, who belong to that community and who belong to that uh, region and i think in a way probably they also understood the value of your work and the and and your intention hmm. and and uh, probably that's what helped them to help you hmm. or rather enabled them or sort of like you know motivated yeah. them to help you and and for me the other thing which is really fascinating is to see that you know how uh, the this transition of people who were once nest hunters become nest protectors ha huh, they were not nest hunters so let me okay. clarify that so yeah, yeah. the nishi people have never like not really uh, very few people would do that 
mm-hmm. uh, they have a lot of taboos on hunting even before like they had taboos mm-hmm. on hunting the hornbill during the breeding season mm-hmm. it's considered a big sin, sin to uh, hunt the male uh, you know during because the female is locked up inside the nest right mm-hmm. and in the long breeding season that the hornbills have um, you know it can be up to 4 months for the larger species and so the male is the sole provider of food to the so it's looked at they have stories about anybody who um, does this and what happens to them so mm-hmm. mostly people would not hunt during the breeding season but in the non breeding season they would hunt them so the mm-hmm. nishi people i don't know if you've seen such images or whatever but they wear uh, the cask of the great hornbill especially on their mm-hmm. uh, headgear bobia mm-hmm. it's called the mm-hmm. men and it's part of their traditional like a cane cap on which and they'll have feathers of other birds also sometimes uh and other animals uh, fur and all that but hornbill so that's but what happened is that there's also an interesting story about that is that when i almost finished my phd thesis and sort of left pake for one or two years there was a gap when i didn't come to pake in 2001 and 2002 and the during that time there was an, another officer forest officer who was an ishi he along with this other organization called the wildlife trust of india which is another um, wildlife ngo that works in the area mm-hmm. um they began this program called the you know they call artificial beak mm-hmm. so he had this idea that we could replace the beak with um uh, you know a fiberglass or uh, yeah. you know so uh and try to get people to adopt or accept that so mm-hmm. that also took off right and mm-hmm. then in that time there was some other com- community kind of um, village council uh, organized mm-hmm. like a vfdc was a you know as part of this village forest committees and all that which mm-hmm. had been formed those people had also started this thing about banning hornbill hunting completely uh-huh. okay. so there were different actors in different times who so the community like earlier when i started my phd there was like quite a open hunting of hornbills and you could see beaks in people's houses and all that but then it changed you know mm-hmm. uh, from 2003 onwards i would say that the whole attitude to hunting hornbills changed and mm. even some of the gamburas that i had worked with who were my part of our field team one of them who passed away he was an amazing man he just changed so a lot of people changed over time you know personally seeing the and when also i think it's also because several researchers not just me later on also came into pake and worked mm-hmm. i think a lot of people also saw that you know people are coming from outside to study all these birds and feel yeah. so strongly so yeah. um, i know that taya tayung who was one of my uh, like you know one gambura who i really loved and looked up to he passed away unfortunately in a car accident mm-hmm. he was part of our team and uh, he was a big hunter but he mm-hmm. also had like lot of empathy you know an understanding of the creatures and so how he gave up hunting he told me you know why mm-hmm. so um yeah so i think i veered away from your question sorry <laughs> no but, i i wanted to yeah. sort of like you know just yeah. clarify this this nest protection program oh, right 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 yeah yes. so so they they uh they so people in aruna like people hunted the hornbill mainly mm-hmm. for the beak uh and but very uh very minimally for its flesh uh, mm-hmm. to eat obviously mm-hmm. if they've hunted it they might uh, eat the mm-hmm. meat but not really for its meat and also to some extent people also use the fat mm-hmm. of the bird apparently it has some you know people believe it 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 has some um medicinal effect on gout or other joint pains but mostly it was hunted for the beak by the nishi community in eastern arunachal 
There are other tribes that hunt the hornbill for the tail feathers. Mm-hmm. These are, um, you know, other communities. So, so in uh, so because of um, because of all these uh, different uh, events and reasons, and Tana Tapi also came into the area in 2006, and you know, a lot of these initiatives against hunting were started, and this Gorave Society was established, and all mm-hmm. that. So there already been sort of kind of a general consensus on not hunting hornbills so much. Right. Mm-hmm. Although even after we began the nest adoption program, there have been a few stray incidents of hunting of hornbills, um, not directly at our nests, but uh, other like birds. So, uh, but those turned out to be usually by outsiders, because mm-hmm. there's outsiders meaning other community tribes who are mm-hmm. uh, staying there uh, as part of government jobs that they're doing in the you know town, and also the you know sometimes the military uh, sort of post uh, some you know outpost is there so some of those people you know may have been involved in some of those cases and um several of the times that that happened there was a quite a big fuss created by many of the community about why have they come and hunted here and what have they done and trying to impose fines on them so but the big issue that has really been challenging is the illegal logging that is yeah. going on you know and that is much more difficult to mm-hmm. handle because the thing is that different people are involved in it and it's all embedded no within the community mm-hmm. so sometimes mm-hmm. our nest protectors and even our partners face trouble in trying to control it mm-hmm. right even if they want to mm-hmm. and this is where i was you know telling you that reserve forest it's a big bit of a challenge because reserve forest is neither community owned fully mm-hmm. nor mm-hmm. is it under the fully properly under the control of the forest department yeah and yeah. there it becomes kind of messy as to who is going to like how are you going to like you know enforce and right. one of the big uh, issues with our program is that while the nest protectors have been trained in all this monitoring and data collection all that you know we've mm-hmm. won um it's been recognized by you know sanctuary asia award gave a you know a sanctuary asia gave an award to the nest protectors mm-hmm. then the india biodiversity award undp they got that recognition um it's all good but they really are looked upon as great um, sort of role models by so many people but also many people in the community also are upset with them uh, because they are trying to stop the felling of trees and all that um, some people cooperate sometimes uh-huh, uh-huh. some people don't so it's yeah. very very complicated no i i think it's it's just so interesting you know prajita the way you describe it it's just the reality like even when we talk about community participation yes i mean it's it, in the ideal world um it it's great to have that but then the reality of that is that when we talk about community participation it's not that the community will come together on its own and will just like join hands and oh no 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 it's not at all like that yeah it's very comp- and you know that's the thing yes. the local politics the dynamics between different yes. actors and how people who has power you know yeah. it's it's very complicated and yes. we have you know we get buffeted we get like <laughs> thrown around by all of that and it's very right. we have disagreements also right. uh, we find allies then they turn out to be not such great allies it's it's very very uh, and you know it's uh, you know i am doing it as a practitioner and mm. that's why it's not it's hard to document it in a more 
uh, slightly more uh, how will i say like a bit of a more distant kind of view right yeah, yeah. but it should be actually because it's uh, it's i'm not written about all of this at all you it, know i can uh, imagine yeah. that you know it's hard it's, to write about some of it absolutely i that's what makes uh, you know writing about the re- the real world so difficult because how do you comprehend or articulate all these like multiple factors and and then explain a phenomena you know yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, but then you know on that note um uh, uh i wanted to shift gears a little bit and and also uh, you know talk about this work on uh, community based restoration that you're also doing like um how like from the being really engaged in hornbill conservation how did this transition transition to ne- restoration happen and then uh, i'm i'm seeing that even in that work like you know uh, you've you've partnered up with uh, communities and also with other stakeholders so i wanted to hear a little bit about that as well okay so it's not it's not i would just like to correct you it's not really community based restoration that mm-hmm. work is more driven mainly by us right at the moment although we would like it us to be meaning meaning ncf you know as uh, me and the 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 kind of our researchers and our uh-huh. uh, field staff mm-hmm. um it came about because one of my colleagues i was telling you amruta initially so we mm-hmm. noticed that a lot of the because of this like I, i was telling you this whole degradation of the reserve mm-hmm. forest right the tree density is almost half mm-hmm. of what is in despite the fact that hornbills are nesting we have more than over the years we've had 40 35 to 40 hornbill nest trees in there and but the vegetation is pretty degraded in many parts of the reserve forest only in mm. the parts which are in the hilly and steep terrain it's really good but otherwise um near the villages and surrounding areas it's quite uh, degraded mm-hmm. so and which is getting worse because of the logging right so now so we always thought a restoration is needed in this landscape mm-hmm. but we were not sure how to do that right but then the opportunity came when the territorial division one range officer he was very keen and he had space and we sort of had some discussions with him and mm-hmm. he gave us space to start a nursery so it started off on a very um, sort of small scale you know mm-hmm. and i had also had inspiration from my colleagues divyan shridhar because mm-hmm. they had made it work in they started much earlier in 2001 in 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 a very different landscape and different context uh where land ownership was much more clearer you know with the private uh, owner tea estate owners so i knew the ecological part of it right how mm-hmm. how we should do it and i also had advice from them and all that so we um and like you know i'm a doer so i just begin mm-hmm. things and then i regret because then i'm left holding with holding all the problems you know and having to manage it for a long time right mm-hmm. so then uh, it it just became the nursery we it started with a few species and we had problems with goats getting in then we did fencing and mm-hmm. it just grew from there right but unfortunately that ranger was transferred you know mm-hmm. and then we were even since then we'd been trying to sort of formalize a sort of relationship with the forest department because mm-hmm. that ranger was interested he had given you know even some resources for it initially but that sort of petered out mm-hmm. you know the 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 we never could sort of end up doing a more formal kind of arrangement uh, mm-hmm. agreement with the forest department the territorial and 
then what happened is that we realized we ran into problems in the first two, first two years we were setting up the nursery and growing the seedlings and saplings of native forest mm-hmm. species right um because we have to have it to a certain size before we can think of you know where to restore and in the first year we wanted to restore of course in the rf and we thought we'd start with nest trees in the reserve you know, forest yeah, yeah near the mm. nest trees especially mm. so around the nest trees which had been you know which 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 just stand but there's a lot of like it's just open in many places right so we did that at a small scale and then we also so our nursery idea is not just about restoring in the forest but mm-hmm. we were also growing a certain proportion of the saplings to give to local people because you know so people what they do is they also plant around their homes home garden or in what they call their kheti you know nearby mm-hmm. which is all part of the reserve forest by the way but yeah. there they do their own plantation which is for their future right and i felt that we should grow some of those species which people want and need mm-hmm. because it's better that they do it i mean that they take it and grow it and maybe cut it after 25 30 years but at mm-hmm. least they will not go to the forest right so and these are all native forest species which are economically important these are not mm-hmm. uh, you know so uh, we uh, wanted to give to people but we were also concerned if we give to people what will the forest department say mm-hmm. will there be some kind of because then sometimes what happens is they'll say that the people will claim it as theirs mm-hmm. where they have planted which already happens in arunachal mm-hmm. so this is the problem in a reserve forest area yeah. and um, then we realize oh my god we can't really plant in much in the reserve forest which actually needs a restoration uh, because the ownership is mixed up mm-hmm. at one level the forest department you know if we do it with the local people yeah. then it's like they will they might say it's theirs later and the department has a worry about that then they can you know tell us off as mm-hmm. you know ncf you know sort of the other problem is that if we do it only with the forest department then also we have to get the okay from local people because even the forest department recognizes that even though legally it is reserve forest in arunachal you do accept i mean there is some kind of understanding that there are villages here and people do use those areas right right so that's the problem of governance and forest rights in arunachal you know where it's not very mm-hmm. clear, clear in some of these areas even mm-hmm. in the community forest of arunachal unlike mizoram or nagaland the it's like de facto rights mm-hmm. you have mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. nobody is ever going to take it away from them but at the same time it's not so clear because mm-hmm. the department also shows it as part of the usf what they call unclassed state forest uh-huh. and this is a this is a one of the biggest issues in arunachal and mm-hmm. i feel bad sometimes that we are not working more on these kind of issues uh, clarifying uh, the rights uh, yeah i mean ownership yeah. yeah and also looking at governance um, you know in maybe you might be interested you know mm-hmm. to there are other people who are doing some of it but yeah, yeah i think it needs more work and maybe a coming together of different kinds of groups of people with different skills absolutely um, yeah. yeah so 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 okay so the another thing we have noticed which is very basic kind of some of our research we've seen that community forests have much better forest cover and mm-hmm. state Mm-hmm. uh in terms of tree density and basal areas mm-hmm. and which is more close to protected areas than 
most reserve forests. Why is that so? That's because again of this unclear ownership. Because uh, community forests, uh, while at some level they are part of the legal thing, they have uh, rights for all mm-hmm. practical purposes, right? Mm-hmm. And people govern those resources. Yeah. So people have much, much stricter rules. Uh, for of, their community forests. Yeah, especially uh-huh. among some communities. It works better mm-hmm. with some communities like the Adis and many others, Apatani, make many people than other some communities where it's more decentralized, but mm-hmm. where they don't have strong institutions, but where they have strong institutions. But again, I, I'm, I'm saying this only anecdotally and based mm-hmm. on only some data. It's not yeah. being studied at a deeper level to really mm-hmm. see whether it's true uh, mm-hmm. all across but anyway, so that's mm-hmm. uh, so then we realized, okay, we can't restore much in the reserve forest where we need to. Yeah. But we did find some areas in the reserve forest on the other side uh, where mm-hmm. there's an elephant corridor mm-hmm. uh, where, uh, you know, where it's very critical to uh, restore. But again, that was not so much of a success because we planted there one year and then we again replanted there. And there the forest department, the the, the wildlife, um, you know, Tanata, like a ranger, and they managed to protect it for some time. Mm-hmm. But there again, that land is disputed because again, local uh, people claim some of that area. Right. So there was some like mortality of the seedlings there. Uh, it's kind of survived to some extent, but it's mm-hmm. very small areas. So then we also started working in uh, restoring in uh, inside the park. So uh, mm-hmm. some of our more, it's more clear cut, right? Yeah. It was not our mm-hmm. original goal, but in terms of inside Paki also, there are a lot of areas which are degraded from the past. Mm-hmm. And unlike a lot what people say that, you know, you just need to protect and it'll come back and passive restoration works. Yeah, yeah. I have seen many, many gaps or patches in Paki which have been the same for the last 25 years, mm-hmm. even without any disturbance or any... So they've just been covered by weeds. Mm. So uh, the vegetation is suppressed. It doesn't right. uh, regenerate on its own, like people believe, yeah. at least uh, in the patches we've seen. Yeah. So we started restoring in small patches over there, along mm-hmm. with the per- permission and okay yeah. from the forest department. Okay. Uh, but we also done some, like I said, some small, small areas in the reserve forest. Mm-hmm. And we've also done in the tea estates in Assam. Mm. So there are some tea estate managers who have um, in nearby Assam who have some areas where they want to keep it for more natural, those blanks yeah. and some areas where they want to have some. So they, they we have done it in two, three tea estates mm-hmm. also. So, right. so right. it's it's like it's been about... 2016, we did our first planting and now it's 2021. We only planted about 12 to 13 hectares. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that's not much, right? Um, And we've we've raised about, every year we managed to raise about four to 5,000 saplings Mm -hmm. uh, in our nursery. We have a team uh, of about four or five local staff. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, so my colleague Nupur um, Borawake, she's the one who sort of, manages right. this program who's also the lead author of one of the papers that, yeah, that paper that paper right. yeah she joined yes. us in uh, three years ago and mm-hmm. she's actually it's very good because she's really into it and she wants to also study it for her phd or do some work on it for her phd but she's um she's very um 
into it and she more or less manages it totally herself now and mm-hmm. i just give uh, you know but what the challenging part and this is where i think forest fleischman what he says mm-hmm. you know for me for us the challenging part is sort of figuring out the policy framework and sort of yeah. the governance and trying to yeah. manage or restore larger areas where we have the buy in from both the community and the forest department yeah. where it works you know where uh, yeah so we are trying to do that we have mm-hmm. some partners in the community who've identified some areas mm-hmm. and there is some dialogue happening now with the territorial division of the forest department but you know it needs to yeah move faster and yeah uh, it has to be done at a slightly higher level I absolutely think. no and and this is a really important and a very relevant point that you brought up aprajita the fact that um that how role of governance is undermined uh, undermined in these like you know conservation the restoration uh, processes and you know how based on your experience you highlight that it is something that uh, cannot be overlooked and uh, you know these these governance processes and these political processes they have to be taken into consideration especially like you know when when we are thinking about these like you know attaining these like you know larger goals of uh conserving uh, a natural habitat or you know even thinking about like restoring uh, restoring it so i mean i i, I think it is it is a very valid uh, observation and also a valid uh, point that you've brought up that uh, uh because often times i think uh, it's a matter of discipline also like conservation is something which is mostly like it's a field that is dominated by uh, conservation scientists and wildlife biologists and uh, i think it, there are some like you no know, disciplinary uh, constraints involved as well so uh, clearly like the gaps that you've highlighted uh, and and i'm just sort of reiterating and reinforcing the the point that you've just made is the just the relevance of uh, understanding the governance mechanisms and 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 figuring that out taking care of and clarifying the governance process in order to find or hope for some success in the conservation right. process so one uh, caveat like one thing is that of course there have been at the same time i just wanted to say that a lot of our saplings are also given to the local forest department or to the some local ngos that work there now youth groups mm. or mm-hmm. uh, district administration or the army when they want to do these plantation you know on these yeah. days that they do you know yeah. um also there's one village where we live our base camp they wanted to do some restoration along so yeah. they take you know saplings yeah. and all yeah. so there are these small small efforts but mm. i think the la- and those make us feel good that those mm. are happening but uh what i was yeah what i think is a challenge is to sort of and especially you know given the problem like at the larger scale people need economic and livelihood opportunities also right yeah. and arunachalis yeah. are aspiring for a lot of now there's other monocultures of cash crop plantations coming mm. in many places and have come you know and mm-hmm. people are very aware of all of the things right so right. there's rubber plantations right. also in this area uh, uh. which have come up and you know so you cannot so the another problem that's in arunachal and i think outsiders we always tend to view it as oh all of it is forest and all of it has to be saved mm. but you know but the point is that there have to be some areas for people and yeah. the thing is that um, and there's also a lot of maligning of jhum cultivation 
which is another big deal. Yeah. yeah, one of my PhD students looked at that. By the way, we have some mm. papers on on that work. We our work has shown, and plus my other colleagues' work has shown that jhum cultivation is not actually a bad thing. It has mm-hmm. it actually creates a mosaic mosaic of right. uh, different right. vegetation. You know, in different um, times of succession, right? And it's a kind of it actually is good for biodiversity uh, compared to say something like a monoculture right uh, cash crop plantation which is yeah. usually a non native species yeah so but people so the discourse has been so much against the jhum mm-hmm. cultivation mm-hmm. that like everybody thinks jhum cultivation is bad now. bad yeah even a lot of local people you know mm-hmm. in arunachal think that jhum is bad <laughs> mm-hmm. so yeah yeah so changing all of that you know is difficult absolutely i and i know that you know that, i mean you have such rich stories and such rich experiences uh, prajita i think i can just go non stop i can go like talking to you about this for for hours and and i want to wrap up uh, but yeah. in the process of wrapping up um what i want you to um help us tie all these like different observations together like um i i wanted to ask you if there are some like broad conclusions or or trends in your research like the research that you've been working for all these years that that you can see emerging from your work no i think in terms of addressing the the kind of threats to the landscape i think that you know some of what we do is kind of very very it's not impacting at the policy level it sort of addresses um Uh, is giving small models of an island of like where you are able to work for some years with a community with a problem right what else i was trying to think about yeah this forest governance problem and also mm-hmm. assessing the state of forest cover um, you know i think we don't have a good handle on that at all for okay. not just india but i mean of course for the i'm talking about the northeast indian region mm-hmm. and the drivers of deforestation Mm. because yeah. see yeah. this fsi report every uh-huh. year it forest keeps saying it's that forest, forest survey. survey of india yeah. it keeps yeah. saying that this many uh, in the uh, northeast in the last uh, report says 200 plus uh, square kilometers of forest lost right in arunachal uh, yeah. and then it says due to development activities jhum and blah 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 Yeah. but we really don't see what are the drivers because nobody yeah. is researching on it yeah. and i don't have the skills unfortunately remote sensing gis mm-hmm. skills but i wish some of the skilled people in that could yes. really take it up at the india level or at the northeastern level the other thing is with this whole debate on people versus wildlife and yes. the park and you know i just think that we need more site specific context specific solutions and people right. should stop it's really sad that after 30 years since i was a master student the divide still continues yes. although it's much better there's a lot of uh, you know controversy with the forest rights act for instance mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because many people are divided on that issue among wildlife biologists you know mm. and i just feel that yeah people engage more with understanding the spectrum of you know issues and not put it in binaries you know like simplistic right. kind of thing that okay people are bad people are negative you know it's it's not yeah. like that it's much more nuanced and even even the coexistence thing even from the social scientists many of them tend to simplify some mm-hmm. uh, things um 
like when you're talking about coexistence also it need not be that coexistence is a static thing mm-hmm. you know there are um, things can change uh, with so right. many external and it's a gradient right mm-hmm. but no it no it makes sense and it really like drives home the message like all these different like uh, four or five uh, broader lessons that you just listed i mean it they they drive home the message of possibly some of the future direction in which a lot of these like uh, a lot of the interdisciplinary uh, scientists who are thinking of working in the areas of conservation and and development can think about moving uh, valuing context specific work and and scaling up the local level lessons and 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 the value of governance and then uh, um, and then really focusing on the key drivers man i have no idea no clue as to like you know, why don't we have more research on the the primary drivers of land degradation the uh, another issue is that you know in arunachal we don't they don't implement the forest rights act right mm-hmm. because a lot of the what the government says is that it's already implemented meaning that people already have rights have their rights yeah but it's not clear it's not in yeah. that framework and it's it's yes. much like you There's know confusion. so it, yeah it's it's not uh, and it's convenient to say that i think and i think yes. it should be implemented it would yeah. actually make things much more clearer because yeah. you see another problem is that in arunachal apart from the historical you know whatever of what communities which communities own what but there's mm. never been any kind of ground surveys yeah. cadastral surveys to sort of yeah. demarcate areas and mm-hmm. that is now is resulting in conflicts between mm-hmm. different communities between ownership yeah. kind of things because and, it's not been documented yeah and that those are the areas where there is a lot of illegal stuff happening whether it's yeah. uh, mining or whether it's um, forest uh, you know illegal logging and stuff Thank you so much uh, Aparajita um uh, thank you so much for uh, engaging in such uh, enriching this i mean this was mostly like you know your experience and and i learned a great deal from this aparajita and i cannot thank you enough again uh, for sparing time and and sharing with so much authenticity and and so much genuineness i i really appreciate it and i wish you all the best and uh, I hope I I get to see you and I get to meet you in person. Yeah. <laughs> Take, Take care. care. Yeah. Bye. <laughs> yeah. Thanks again everyone for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can follow us for more updates on Twitter at incommonpod. Feel free to write to us. We'd love to hear from you.